0: good? Yep, go ahead. In 2020, the pandemic hit like a ton of bricks. And a lot of us, those who weren't deemed essential workers, went online. I bet you heard about this. Hmm? How's it going? Are you doing okay? Are you hanging in there? But then some months ago, we started doing more things back in person. Still not everything we used to do in person, but more. And how's that been going for you? Are you the kind of person where still you hardly go out of your house or maybe you don't go out at all? And if you do go out, you are really, really anxious. Or are you drinking beer with your shirt off at the bar, screaming the lyrics along with Leonard Skinnerd? Those are two different ways to live right there. How has being online affected the institutions of our society? And by institutions, I mean both deep cultural habits like shaking hands and organizations that formalize such habits like hospitals, churches, psychotherapy sessions, government offices, courts and schools. For instance... Has being online been bad for students, especially young children, and their learning? I've seen some studies say it has. How has Zoom affected churches or voluntary associations? On balance, has going virtual been good or bad? Like many people, I have mixed feelings about all of this. On the one hand, as a professor, I cannot tell you how happy I was to get back to in-person instruction with my undergraduate students last semester. And they were happy too. Though for the first part of the course, I taught them in an outdoor amphitheater like I was fucking Socrates or something. Though I call him Socrates. Socrates. And then I think about my work with my therapist, Bridget Zimmerman, who is also my teacher and spiritual guide. We switched to Zoom when the pandemic hit, but we got back together as soon as we possibly could. Zoom simply isn't effective for the kind of work we do together. And Bridget and I both believe that as embodied beings, there are certain aspects of humans being together that do not work at a distance. What I'm talking about is only partly about body language. It also goes beyond that to what we might describe as the relating of spirits. I'm talking about our souls. But at the same time, I know that our move to being virtual has actually been good for some people in our society. And I can think of lots of kinds of examples of this. But maybe for the moment, I'll mention the disabled who have been asking for more virtual access to work In education for a long time. If we go back to being wholly in person, which I actually don't think we're gonna do, we will harm some people. And to go back to my therapy example, I have little doubt that going virtual and the rise of online and video based therapy has led more people to seek out therapy to get help for their struggles. And lots of people are struggling right now because we are living in some. Fucked up times. You know what I mean? I think you do. So, again, has being online been good or bad? Well, guess what, folks? There is one thing you can say about life it is complicated. You know, one thing that has helped me think about all of this is a book called The Distance Cure A History of Teletherapy by Hannah Zeven who is a lecturer in the Department of History at the University of California, Berkeley, and a member of the executive committees of both the Berkeley Center for New Media and the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society. Zeven is pretty cool, I think, and my bet is you're going to think so too. The Distance Cure tracks the history of teletherapy, which Zeven defines as therapeutic interaction over distance, and it's metamorphosis from a model of cure to one of contingent help. It starts with letters sent through the mail, and it ends in our current coronavirus catastrophe. We also talk about the complexities and potential harms of going back fully in person, including how it will negatively affect disabled people. I mentioned the thinking of my Virginia Tech Disability Studies colleague, Ashley Shu in our conversation. Big shout out to Ashley fucking Shu. I believe the work of Hannah Zeven is helpful for thinking about the time we are living in right this very moment. Right now, just as you hear this, the second that is just now gone. Boop! We need more nuanced thinking like this in the world. Get excited. (music) Hannah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Lee.
0: Your book is cool um so when you tell strangers about it uh what do you tell them it's about and what were you trying to do with it
1: uh that presumes that i'm telling strangers about my 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 weird book um but um were i to tell and and in the pandemic but um (laughs) uh what do i say i'm trying to do with it well i worked on this book for oh nearly a decade um i wanted to elaborate a genealogy of the ways clinicians and patients, really broadly defined, have tried to bridge a physical gap uh, from 1890 to present, so starting with Freud, uh, through to the beginning of the pandemic, now that we're temporalizing it, uh, early pandemic, and to look at the tools and techniques that allowed them to do so um, against all kinds of crisis condition, uh, problems with mediation, problems with the technology, um, in order to not just um, allow the work to go on, but also to introduce new ways of being therapeutically intimate with one another. And so I think the book set out to do just that.
0: How would you get started down this road? I mean, how did you start working on the project?
1: I think this reveals uh, a little bit how my mind works which is um that's a bit additive. <laughs> I had two what felt like very separate uh beloved sort of um interests as they're called, but that sort of belies how important they are to the one who has them. Uh, One with the history of technology and media, and the other, again, really felt separate with the history of psychology broadly defined. So psychiatry, psychoanalysis, psychology, Um, and kind of was in a bad mood for a long time trying to figure out how I could not give one up, which I didn't Mm want to do. Um, And uh, then the kind of the way my mind works is like, well, What if you stuck them together, Hannah? Um, (laughs) You know, made a book about the mediated, the history of mediated therapy. Uh And that's where I started. Um, But the problem very quickly was that the book's first argument is that all therapy is mediated. That from the moment Freud stopped laying hands on his patients, a lot of things happened. And one of them was that an intervening distance, a kind of mediated distance was introduced. Of course, we think of hypnosis as a kind of mediation, but that instead of getting rid of suggestion leading to a kind of purity, um, that in fact, a a different kind of mediation was introduced. So I couldn't write a book on mediated therapy. It would be everything, Uh, but also including War Shark, which I didn't want to touch, or Art Therapy. So I specified to teletherapy. Uh, And proto teletherapy in the case of letter writing Um, and went from there and wanted to go back as far as possible. And indeed, it was possible to write a chapter on Freud because he was doing, you know, a version of teleanalysis via the post.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to kind of draw that out because you put in some effort in the intro. I mean, it runs throughout the book, but it's especially in the intro and the Freud chapter of kind of breaking down what we might take as a kind of natural distinction between in-person talk therapy and therapy over media. Because, you know, you point out that it's never just like this dyad between like a two-person relationship between a therapist and the client or the person seeking care. There's always like the frame around it, right? There's the office. There's, you know, there's all these other things that add to it. So... Like, draw that out a little bit more. What does that allow us to kind of see about the relationship that we might miss if we just kind of assume we go from this natural two-person relationship to like, you know, a phone or something, other kind of mediated thing?
1: Great. Thank you so much for that question. Well, part of the motivation was to really look at how the in-room scenario, which again, I've always describe as as being triadic. There's always a patient, at least one, a therapist, typically one, and some form of mediation. So in the sort of ur scene, instead of it being a dyad, I talk about the frame as you're bringing up, which is, yes, the office, but also the hour that people are meeting at, also the Mm -hmm. fee. These zones where people actually, the patients, so-called, tend to be rather expressive, but so do therapists about kind of delimiting and boundary and also enactment when it's not quite respected or when it's broken. Um, so it allowed me to say there's, in a way, there's a continuity, but we're just adding a whole other set of framings. Like the phone is very different from Zoom um, for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. Uh, and that that's going to inflect a therapeutic relationship in terms of medium specificity, which I talk about with each successive uh media across the book and medium Mm -hmm. across the book. But it also allowed me to pick up this question that was presented again. I was writing long before the pandemic and long before the pandemic really was a kind of litmus test that we lived through. There was a lot Mm. of, you know, almost moral panic around a kind of lesser or ruination of therapy if it was run through the screen. And so part of what I wanted to do was establish that the very things that folks pointed to as being a problem for, quote unquote, mediated therapy, for teletherapy, were already intrinsic to the flexible frame itself, starting with Freud. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that, in fact, we couldn't use Freud as a scapegoat to say Freud would have never approved of it, which people did do and still do. Um, But instead to say, this is there elementally, and then media regimes add something else. But you can't claim purity. You can't claim. So the book also has a kind of Easter egg around telepathy, and you uh, said, of course, the history of teletherapy. But fifty percent of people say the book is the history of telepathy, which I love <laughs> because yeah. it is running joke and non joke about the dream of telepathy as actually yeah. you know inflecting the dream of teletherapy and vice vice versa, um, mm-hmm. and so if telepathy is the purity the no mediation uh teletherapy is is both its anonym and its its sort of sister technique
0: mm mm-hmm. you do you do a nice t- job talking about money as part of the frame i mean the money is a part of the relationship so i wanted you to kind of you know say a bit you know just tell listeners about how you think about that but i mean i think one of the, the things you also draw out in, in multiple chapters is that it's kind of a mark of privilege to uh, kind of, uh, well, privilege <laughs> in-person uh, talk therapy because it's so mm-hmm. expensive, right? Especially psychoanalysis, but also just talk therapy, going to see a therapist is not cheap. And, it, and, it, and it, often these kind of mediated um, technological therapies, whether it's hotlines or you know chatbots whatever you're doing are much m- much more affordable right so i, I want to uh, yeah just say a bit about that like how you think about money in in the relationship and then you know the fact that teletherapy is kind of you know is often cheaper
1: great so that was one of You know, one starts a project and then there are moments where one needs to be sort of fed a reason to keep going. And for me, one of the sort of underlying political concerns of the book uh, was that again and again, as I was doing the archival research, teletherapy is almost always across its long history, including with Freud, done for free or for very low fee. And that psychoanalysis, as an example, now, yes, in general, is extremely expensive, partially because it asks you to come with some great frequency, which also means, of course, not only are you paying, but you're not working. And Mm -hmm. so for those of us who have the hourly wage, this is a, a double problem. Um, and not just the hour, but the commute, right? Which yeah. is one reason people are uh, hesitant to go back to the office, uh, IRL. But um, money is central. And the way money is theorized from the very beginning of psychoanalysis as the first or kind of case of professional psychology shows us that on the one hand, many people believe and still believe that psychoanalysis, as an example, should be very dear to purchase. It's the mark of value. Literally, it's the most concrete thing in the world that in order to make the patient want to do the psychical work, you have to make them invest in it economically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But Freud, one thing, I mean, lots of people have lots of feelings about Freud. I have some. Uh, One thing you have to give Freud is that he was an incredibly flexible thinker. He would happily revise himself. Uh, And Freud gave up that idea around money, that that analysis should be very dear, and actually tried to think about ways to offer it to the masses. Um, And this happens at, at the start of the Spanish influenza and at the close of World War I. And following from there, I tried to trace why and how these various forms of teletherapy, whether they're broadcast, the suicide hotline, Eventually, the the elusive hope to make a chatbot AI machine learning therapist, so-called, which really does remain elusive, is all about a kind of idea of batch processing patients. Mm -hmm. At the same time, corporate teletherapy, which really sort of follows from a lot of those experiments in the 1960s, as we get the rise of CBT, as we get uh, the move from asylum to community, communities that are not prepared to do the work. Um, because they're not funded correctly. And that's a whole other conversation. Teletherapy gets escorted by a democratizing promise. It says it's going to care for the most vulnerable, that it's going to, uh, via just seemingly telephone wire, extend the reach of therapy. And the book really criticizes that you know, sort of PR and marketing is saying, well, not really. And where it happens, it's often to capture and control those populations rather than provide a kind of moral good or care for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So both things are happening at once in the book, two currents around the economic production of the telepatient and the teletherapist.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're just showing that it's part of capitalism, right? I mean, we have this kind of, Fordist impulse to mm-hmm. uh, you know make things as cheap as possible via technology, and then but there's also this kind of control aspect, right? That when we do it, we often do it in the name of making groups kind of disciplined and subservient.
1: Yeah, and of course that's deeply true in the sort of sci disciplines, right? As they cross with all kinds of disciplinary projects. I mean, we have we know this, so that was constantly in evidence. But not all of the cases that I'm looking at are participant, and in fact, some of them are fighting back. So, um, the third chapter of the book is called "The Far Voice," like the telephone, um, which is uh, about the rise of the suicide hotline. And in the United States, the suicide hotline started in the late 1950s, precisely as a therapeutic space away from both the reach of psychiatry and the police. Um, Mm -hmm. On the one hand, psychiatry, because the hotline was being used by LGBT uh, community members in the Bay Area, where I'm calling from today. And on the other hand, policing, because um, not only were police also involved in all kinds of homophobic raids, this was the Lavender Scare era, but also suicide was criminalized. Mm -hmm. And so the hotline was all about moving away from both those modes of control and capture. Um, And that legacy exists today in in organizations like Trans Lifeline, which don't call the cops, uh, which don't tend to make use of psychiatric experts and so on. Hmm. On the other hand, we have datafied hotlines as well.
0: Yeah. So um, I think Well, academics who know some things about Freud know that he tended to use kind of communicative technology metaphors in his thinking a lot, like notes to senders and this kind of stuff that like Derrida and these people would play with endlessly.
1: Mm -hmm. But
0: you point out that he actually used letters to do therapy and other kinds of uh, media. So tell us a bit about that. Tell us about this other side about Freud that I didn't know about. Not the metaphor, but the actual letter writing.
1: Yeah, I think I have a, a, like, in joke somewhere being like, well, instead, like, actual use of media. Right. Um, So (laughs) it is well known, uh, in part, thanks to Derrida, but also lots of people who've worked on the intersection of psychoanalysis and media, the mystic writing pad, and especially the most crucial metaphor, which is that analysis itself is like a telephone call, um, which is the one that's brought out a lot. So I knew that. Uh, Mm Two. And instead wanted to see what Freud's relationship to actual media were. Um, And I couldn't find any evidence that Freud was using the telephone for much analytically. But Freud was a massive uh, correspondent. Uh, He didn't really keep a diary. Um, A little bit towards the end of his life, he kept some very basic notes uh, to help him remember things. Uh, But he wrote it all down in his letters. Um, And there's a very famous sort of set of letters between him and at the time for a while, his best friend, Wilhelm Fleece, uh, where they're called the origin of psychoanalysis, this set of letters. And they have a wild history involving burning them and princesses and you know, fleeing the Nazis and what all of that's in the book, you can read it. But at the core, the letters are understood to be the site of uh, the beginnings of psychoanalysis, where Freud is working out things like the Oedipus complex, interpretation of dreams, uh, other elements of childhood sexuality, really important to media theory, the psychopathology of everyday life, and so on. Like, this is a big moment for Freud, not the only one, but a very big one. And It's all written down to Wilhelm Fleece. But because the letters were partially burnt, we only have Freud to Fleece. We don't have Fleece to Freud. So this has across time been termed Freud's uh, self-analysis, as if uh, nothing was happening the other direction. And I revise that and say we can consider this actually Freud's analysis. If it is his self analysis, it's his analysis. There is someone else there. And the entire thing happened via letter writing, which actually means that the first analytic encounter was not in a consulting room. It was over 10 years or eight years via letter writing. Then Freud goes on to do some more uh, and has an entire case via letter. But then there are endless other examples where a patient will drop off do just three months of treatment and have to go home. Lots of people came to Vienna to see Freud. Then they'd mm-hmm. go home, and Freud kept up correspondence, analytic correspondence with those patients. Mm. Uh, this was really important during both world wars. Also, um, mm-hmm. though Freud died in 1939,
0: I loved it. I thought it, I thought it was really terrific. the The next chapter on on broadcast uh, media and mental health, I think, kind of surprised me just because. Um, yeah, it was just different. It, it, it kind of like caught me by surprise. And I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff there. And it actually got me thinking of my uh, misspent youth, uh, youth listening to like Love Line and, and shows like that. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- Why do you find it useful to, to bring your story to, to kind of mass media, both like advice columns and, and early radio shows focused on psychology?
1: Thank you. Yeah, it is. It is a chapter unlike maybe the rest, um, but it felt important to keep in there um, precisely because the chapter is called Mass Intimacy. And it starts, it picks each chapter really tries to begin where the other left off in some way, not in a mm-hmm. clever way, but in an actually grounded way. So the first chapter on Freud ends with Freud's one and only radio broadcast where he signs his name at the end. Um, because there's this kind of slippage between overlaps of understanding of what the letter is sent to the public and what the broadcast is. And just right on the heels of that BBC broadcast, you know, were these real uh, therapeutic broadcasts being done by lots of psychoanalysts during the war, most famously D.W. Winnicott. Um, And I try and think about them as teletherapy, but not where there's a specific patient. Mm -hmm. but where everyone is sort of joined as a class of patient precisely because this is where that notion of batch processing starts to kick in. Yeah. So teletherapy across its long history is almost always attended by crisis, obviously personal crisis, but greater than that too, (laughs) national crisis. Um, And so the beginning of the chapter situates that following lots of lovely scholarship that has come before and then moves to trace that move of batch processing patients, where in fact it is a collective, um, not just in terms of broadcasting, but also group therapy. That's the first Mm -hmm. part. And then through to experiments like the ones Fanon is writing about, Guattari, these more radical uh, psychiatrists, um, to the least radical possible. (laughs) This is your, I'm sorry, misspent youth moment, I guess. Um, (laughs) You know, Dr. Laura, who actually is, is radically conservative, Right. Um, where, again, there's a kind of instruction about a proper psychological state of mind as, and disciplining a kind of post-feminist woman. Um, mm-hmm. As th- there are these other crises in the United States, especially around white femininity uh, and post the divorce boom and, and uh, you know, the glass ceiling and all of this. And it felt important to trace out that logic. Um, and the, what a patient might patient there in scare quotes might be experiencing, so a kind of distance transference that's not actually for them, yeah. but uh, is being sent back to someone who can't really receive it in order to then think about other kinds of, first of all, because it's a genre of what I call throughout the book distanced intimacy, but other um, scripts that follow. So hotline workers follow scripts, uh, obviously chatbots follow scripts. Uh, mm-hmm. even some of the early e therapy that was being done is very template focused mm. and so it's it's the where that begins because it's not present in freud um and so it mm. felt really important to get it going early in the book to show this is much older than just the panic about will google's Weissa or a bot cute adorable penguin you know know who i am or is it all just one thing is it just yeah. a script we've been running scripts since really across the 20th century. Uh, first, I think, starting on the radio.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, it also just got me, uh, you know, and I'm sure there's, there's good stuff on this written, but, you know, it just also got me thinking about the wider world of, uh, the term pop psychology often gets used kind of disparagingly, right? But there is an enormous market of psych like psycho people writing about psychological stuff for uh you know readers, consumers, you know, like the the magazine Eon, which I've written about written mm-hmm. for several times, you know, they really have headed very hard in a kind of psycho psychological dimension. They now have a whole mag separate magazine called Psych. Think, and really yeah. that's like That's it. So I don't know. It also just got me thinking about that, like that world of us as like consumers of pop psychological knowledge, not in a disparaging sense, necessarily.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was also part of their end in the subsequent chapter, the hotline chapter, which is running through the histories of a certain kind of Protestantism self and self-help and pastoral care. Um, and and also pop psychology as they meet in figures like Norman Vincent Peale and I feel like I'm contractually obligated to say his name anytime I speak about my book. But Smiley Blanton, um, <laughs> yes. who is a Freud's patient and a very, I just I have to get Smiley in there. Writing you. to the archive <laughs> and writing over Smiley Blanton papers was like that was a good day in book in book research. Um, but, okay, so all of that is at play, and if w- there's, of course, a critique. There's a critique of the people producing it, um, yeah. but it, there's also the flip side, which is that people are in dire need of care, um, yeah. and that being in need of care, of course, is a massive vulnerability. And so, another thing the book is tracking is that that contraction of that triad from patient, therapist, and technology, media, mediation to just the person and the technology. Uh, And that really begins with that kind of pop psychology ethos and self-help ethos, where again, it's a script. You can read the same book that I'm going to read and we're both going to be helped. Um, So one of the hardest things about writing this book was that almost every day I sat down to write, I was tasked with thinking the question, "Is, is some help better than no help? Mm -hmm. Is it not? For whom? When? Yeah, Uh, Really tracing the stakes of what was being instructed in these, you know, relationships that include, of course, the very punishing uh, interpersonal relationship with psychiatrists and their patients in the consulting room. Like this is, again, it's not about the tele. It's about something else. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, I want to talk, I mean the chapter on hotlines is just so great. Um, and I, uh, so I mean, I think this is something like everyone, almost everyone knows of the existence of suicide hotlines and other kinds of hotlines. But I feel like this is just like, they don't know this history. So, so tell us about where these things come from and, and how it all got started.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Um, I remain, I think, the hotline chapter, if if one is allowed to say what their favorite chapter to write was, is probably this one, to sit with these actors. Um, so the chapter, The Far Voice, talks about three hotlines. The first, um, which goes on to be called The Samaritans, the very famous international hotline, uh, starts in the mid-1950s when Chad Vera, who is an Anglican vicar, um, realizes that Though he's a very open sort of, you know, uh, parishioner, uh, no one really wants to talk to him about important things. And then, you know, and, and so the book does, should be, you know, there are difficult, um, histories in this book, right. Especially in the suicide hotline chapter, but throughout, um, a young parishioner, uh, in his church takes her own life, um, when she gets her first period, because she's mistaken it for some sort of, quote-unquote, venereal disease. Uh, And there's a suicide epidemic in London after the war. And he's starting to think about how he can reach those uh, in need of care. And he realizes that he's a good candidate, but again, no one wants to talk to him face-to-face. So he moves to London, where he requisitions, I guess is the word, a church that had been bombed out in the Blitz so that had no congregation and staffs it um, with himself and a number of his secretary, a, a number of, Prosner is, is her last name, a, a number of volunteers and starts taking phone calls. And um, it just explodes and very quickly is very celebrated as well. Um, and yeah. that's the first hotline in London. And. Um, and of course is still extant till this day. And again, as I said, international. The second that I look at is that 1959 hotline in the Bay Area started also by an Anglican priest named Bernard Mays, um, who's a self-appellated queer Anglican priest and at the time was closeted at work, um, who was working in Marin, which is gonna be funny to people who live in the Bay Area and hated it. And so would come down to the Tenderloin district on the weekend, uh, to go to gay bars and let the, I think his term is the frost of Marin dissipate. And then he'd go back <laughs> on Mondays. Um, and while he was there, he again, saw this same, you know, a version of the same problem that, um, that Vara had seen, which is that there was a massive thriving, uh, lesbian and gay community on the one hand, uh, that San Francisco really punished. And on the other, that there was a suicide epidemic. Um, And that San Francisco as a city and its media was very blithe about and almost celebrated, which really disturbed him. But again, no one wanted to, from his experience, go talk to a psychiatrist and they certainly weren't gonna call the cops. So he starts to disseminate a little matchbook that he writes in the inside flap of a matchbook for all all the ex-smokers out there. And he says, "Um on the inside, thinking of ending it all call call Bruce with his phone number, and he started a suicide hotline where again, it was all volunteers, um no one with any psychiatric training I mean they were rejected um and within one year of the hotlines being uh running uh, out of the tenderloin, the suicide rate in San Francisco was cut in half
0: hmm.
1: and." A, causation, etc. we don't know, but it obviously yeah. had a pretty intense impact.
0: One of the nice things you draw out in um, that chapter is that hotlines are a kind of peer-to-peer help. They're often staffed by volunteers who don't have training. So yeah, I mean, just say say a bit more about that because it kind of, un- in a way, like, and up to this point, not everyone, I mean, some people are pastors and some people are other kinds of uh figures with status, but most of them are, you know, trained or they're doctors or something. But here we have, you know, this kind of, you know, relationship not based on those kinds of credentials.
1: And in fact, they are their absence, right? So yeah, the hotline does this revolutionary work, which is that it locates the best kind of psychological care is being outside of psychology. Um, being the anonymous ear. So hotlines are not only crucially peer-to-peer, they're also crucially free 24-7 yeah. and anonymous. But anonymity has all of this play there. So the volunteer might take a new name. So Bernard Mays, who goes on to be the chairman of NPR and then founds media studies at UVA, um, mm. you know, takes on Bruce. Everyone is able to have their kind of code name. Um, And callers, too, don't have to give their name or they can as a kind of fostering of intimacy. And it really allows the caller to regulate quite a bit, but also for the volunteer to regulate in other ways, right, via their voice, via the pacing of their speech, via the timbre and tone of the words that they're saying. Uh, And so trainings, because they were trained to do that were focused on that kind of walking with someone. And of mm-hmm. course, what to do, dependent on various scenarios that were occurring on the hotline. So in all of these ways, it was really radical. So radical, in fact, that the major suicidology uh, institute tried to get it shut down in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, now it is the norm. It is the federal norm. But though these hotlines started in the 1950s, it took till 2003 for the U.S. to have a federally funded suicide hotline. So it's been, well, been really in its long history an activist medium.
0: Huh. From there you turn to, um, I guess, algorithmic therapists and chatbots. And perhaps the most famous uh, is Eliza and, uh, and also Perry uh, to kind of on a secondary degree. And I guess I mean I I feel like a lot of people will know who a Eliza is, or you know I that should, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm giving Eliza agency by talking about her as a person now. But um, for listeners who haven't bumped into these systems before, why don't you why don't you just start by uh, telling us a, a bit about them?
1: Okay, so apologies to all of those who never want to hear the term Eliza again. Um, Eliza was Joseph Weizenbaum's 1966 experiment with natural language processing. He set out to not make a therapist. So though Eliza is the most written about therapeutic artifact, she, in scare quotes, did not provide therapy. Arguably, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was accidental if she did. Uh, Weizenbaum programmed it, the script, to communicate a Rogerian uh, therapist doing an intake form. So again, a very basic script. And the thing that's true about Rogerians is they are their client-centered psychotherapists, and they do sound like a stereotypical therapist. So if you say, "I hate my sister." and I don't have a sister. Um, Then the Rogerian would say back, tell me more about hating your sister. Or can you please tell me more about hating your sister or reframing Mm. around that interrogative, um, whatever had just been said. So of course he could code for that and he did. Um, And then, so the story goes, uh, Weizenbaum was horrified to see that in fact, not only did it not appear that the communication was superficial, People were really into talking with the script so much so that they wanted to be alone with her. And Sherry Turkle has written about this. And Lydia Liu has written about this. And Elizabeth Wilson has written about this. But of course, if you're having a book on teletherapy, I too had to write about it. Yeah. Um, but it's not the first case I look at. I look at an earlier case of... Um, so that, that whole chapter is joined. Of course, it is about AI chatbots and the sort of elusive wish to make that therapist bot, but it's also about what kind of intimacy it instructs in the user. And again, there's that slippage, right. finally, from patient to user, client to user. Um, and the earlier one is my favorite artifact in the book, which is Dr. Charles's Slack jerry-rigged tape recorder that gamified speech, so the more you talk, the more tallies you get, and then the more he would pay you. So he created a really closed, very, very rudimentary system to gamify therapeutic speech. Um, And that then flows into Across the Yard, they're both in Cambridge, the Eliza work, uh, Mm -hmm. to open up a discussion of the models of mind that were really friendly to computation at mid-century. So there's a very short, or short enough, I hope, um, retreading of Eliza with, you know, some new interpretation as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the new interpretation of these things is what actually matters. So I mean, where do you, in, at this point, we've kind of laid out a pretty long arc, you know, we've, we started with Freud. And now we're in a much later time, people are playing with computers. How do you see th- how do you see these these things kind of fitting into this longer story that you're interested in?
1: So each chapter really is, in a way, its own micro universe where they do overlap in certain ways, so, right? Freud's ending is, you know, a kind of Winnicottian beginning uh, from chapter one to two, and of course it's after the war in England where we get that first hotline, and it is the same moment also of asylum to community at the end of the hotline chapter, when all of this work on trying to batch process patients begins. So you know the sub- the last chapter of the book before the quota on the pandemic is about e therapy which is really just a continuation of trying to figure out in the continued defunding of community mental health that happens after Reagan yeah. what to do when so many are in need mm-hmm. and of course so this is the driving impulse of so many of the actors in the book and again it's also exactly what corporate teletherapy has uh, alighted on as the way of uh, framing their interventions in the Silicon Valley move fast, break things kind of model. Um, And so in that way, it's all part of a long story about failure in in the predominantly American mental health system, but not only US. Um, And so the failures might be different. Mm -hmm. Um, And how, of course, there's been this long turn to a kind of techno-optimism or techno-chauvinism, yes, it's gonna fix it. And indeed yeah. not so much. But it's also really impacted what kinds of therapy are understood to be proper, uh, not just by you know schools that are doing the training. So CBT is the dominant form now, yeah. and it's also yeah. the only form a computer can provide. Um, but to sort of look at this whole ecosystem. So the book is really trying to say teletherapy is therapy shadow form and we can re-understand the history of therapeutic care as well as, you know, intimacy at a distance for media and tech historians mm-hmm. via this aperture.
0: So I think that, you know, because of COVID and we'll go to COVID in a second, because I, I love, I thought your quota was great, but, you know, because of where we're at right now with, with the internet and therapy Um, you know, I think this is something people have thought about a lot, especially the last few years, but the, the, um, the chapter on kind of e-therapies in the eighties and nineties was another one where I I just thought you did a wonderful job kind of laying out the early history of people trying to toy with these things. So can you, can you just tell listeners a bit about like what people were up to in the eighties and nineties with, you know, with these things?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, So that chapter opens with um, a digital suicide note, but just very quickly to say, which could have been a prank, which could have been real, and no one knows who sent it, but that was sent at Cornell in the late 1980s to a new digital e-therapy service that the university was trying out. And I look at from there the sort of experiments in the late 80s and early 90s with very sort of cuspy um, and very quickly changing uh, internet cultures uh, through 1996, um, which is very different from the late uh, Mm eighties, where people are trying to think about how to harness this new technology to them, new to them uh, to provide uh, a new form of therapeutic care. One again, that like the hotline is very invested in anonymity or pseudo anonymity um, and is yeah. Almost again, always for free, even though many of the people I interviewed for this said, "Yes, I thought I would charge 300 dollars for a month of unlimited care oh, in 1996, and I ended up never making nor charging a cent. So it again comes uh-huh. back into this sort of democratizing um, fantasy that the individual can scale and provide more care, faster, better, because of mm-hmm.
0: now the Internet. So you, um, you end with the, with COVID. I mean, I, you know, with when Andy Russell and I, uh, were publishing the, the innovation delusion, uh, we were in revisions when COVID hit. So it was like, we got to add the word pandemic in a couple of places. <laughs> and then like, you know, there was so much discourse about like essential workers and stuff who were, uh, you know many of whom were the kind of people we call maintainers that it would have been nice to to be able to write a coda of sorts but i feel like you know your book was another one kind of um not that COVID is any kind of blessing for anyone but if there's a moment for your book to come out it really it was a it was an interesting moment to be able to reflect on so i guess you know like what are what are some things that you think we should draw out of COVID when it comes to you know, that all the themes you explore, you know, in this, this notion of, you know, care and healing at a distance.
1: Well, I think one thing to say is we're still deeply in it. Um, and so earlier when I said that the coda, which is called when distance was everywhere or when distance is everywhere, I can't remember if I was optimistic or not. Um, but I wrote it at the end of last June. Uh, and, yeah. um, you know, I had... When distance is everywhere, okay, I was being pessimistic. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. So I wrote the coda in in relationship to not just the pandemic, but also the uprisings of that summer, which right. is now two summers ago, seeing as it's fall and of 2020. And really thinking about what kinds of care um, were being offered and received and also trying to do a history of the present, right, Um, to say this is what's happening right now. So looking at how every single form of care that I had explored, like including the letter, was coming into um the you know the very urgent uh, and emergent pandemic crisis situation so lots of new hotlines uh, for emergency workers specifically um all over the world uh, not just in the US um you know new call in shows like it was just the entire playbook and trying to think about that mm-hmm. uh, but i also wanted to do two things in the coda one was to add a kind of theorization of of failure of glitch of rupture Um, because again, in the switch to Zoom, lots of the therapists that I'd been in touch with were saying, well, it freezes and that's unbearable. So I was trying to think about why little moments of failure uh, in the medium are felt to be unbearable. So I talk about the medium inside as one sort of aperture onto that question because Fanon shows us early in the second chapter that in fact, the broke the so-called broken medium might actually be the perfect medium. Um, and so this notion that the medium has to be perfect to work is, is, I think, wrongheaded. And I try and talk about that. And then also to think about all of the narratives of loss uh, surrounding um, teletherapy, but also really all remote relations that were coming up in the pandemic. Yeah. Um, we were all, uh, academics. It was like March 13th, suddenly no more classroom, figuring out zoom teaching and so on. And a lot of the discourse within the academy was very similar to what was happening also over in psychotherapy writ, writ large. So to think about why we're actually fixated on the screen, as a kind of the bearer of everything bad of late stage capital, uh, in those moments instead of something else, um, like capital itself. Uh, and so the, the coda is trying to do those three things of history of a present and those two additional theorizations. Um, and yeah, it would be interesting to reread now, uh, a year and some on because things have also changed.
0: Yeah. So I've been, uh, I've been seeing the same therapist for a few years ago, something I'm, or a few years now, something I'm very open about and talk about a lot. She's awesome. She's a badass lady. Uh, what stands out to me in in my, you know, we went online briefly. I would actually come to my office uh, to mm-hmm. do therapy because uh, at that point, my home didn't have, I live out in the country and my home didn't have high-speed internet. We only had a spot. Mm-hmm. So if we were going to get any kind of a strong Zoom signal going. I had to do it here. But what stands out to me is that, um, she and I really sped to be back in person, like as soon as possible, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, so it turned out she had COVID antibodies because she kind of didn't get it, but got it from her daughter. Um, so we called that safe enough to like go back in person, you know? And, um, and also, you know, I see it in, um... In education as well. I mean, I think that, you know, both in K-12 education and in schools and in in colleges, rather, there's been a a speeding to get back in person, even when it's risky, right? I mean, in all kinds of ways, like too fast, probably, I would say, even in, in, in colleges, too. And at the same time, um, I think that the fact that we've gotten better at being on zoom has been great for other people, especially like disabled people, homebound people. Um, and, um, and yeah, and so, and, and my therapist, I actually saw her today and I was, t- I told her I was going to interview you about, uh, your book. And she said that some of her therapist friends say that they're always there, they're They are going online forever. So it's really worked worked work for them. So, yeah, I just wonder like what you think after, you know, spending a decade with this book on kind of care at a distance like this kind of I I don't know, there's so much there. But I mean, maybe we can start with that, that feeling, that craving so many people have to like get back in person, to get back in the room. Um, Yeah. Well, let's just start there.
1: Well, I mean, so just start with your, your I had to go to my office because we don't have Internet. So on the one hand, um, opening up the option of online interaction is of course, um, huge for accessibility. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so important and something that been agitated for, for so long by disability activists that suddenly once the, you know, abled population writ large needed it. And of course is now being rescinded also as the disability activist community is fighting to keep these, these new avenues open. We're seeing that in therapy, right? Um, for sure. Um, but there are other non, there are other issues of access, right? The idea that just everyone has the infrastructure, uh, including the high speed internet is not true. Um, it's deeply not true in the U S uh, and let alone beyond. Um, and, uh, So there are all these different sort of variables to weigh, which really means that it starts to be a triadic conversation between a patient, a therapist, and the material reality holding the two of them together, Yeah. Uh, along with things like risk, right? Risk tolerance is actually quite particular.
0: Totally. One
1: might feel totally comfortable themselves, but have an unvaccinated four-year-old, and it's going to be a totally different conversation for some. Um, So I think all of those things have been in play. But yeah, I've talked to many people who never want to go back to their offices, right? um, in part because it's cheaper economically. And so they can work less or they can lower their fees or have a more radical sliding scale. I've also seen it really reinvigorate conversations around. And I make this argument in the opening of the book. And I couldn't be more pleased to see it borne out in real life and now that once you start having some flexibility around other aspects of the frame, people start to reconsider the money and start to reconsider how could I make a more radical and equitable private practice? What about opening up a clinic?
0: Um, Mm -hmm. So I think
1: that on the one hand, it's very much still a question about teletherapy care at distance, but also these other um, ways that just that shift, oh, we can do it means that people are really considering, um, you know, access to therapy more broadly. I'm also really worried about that pushback, obviously to schools, which we're living through. We were just talking about teaching in person before the, the call began. Yeah. Um, but also with, with therapists, uh, you know, where, where it can rescind access that was just, um, so painfully won.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, uh, a real theme amongst, uh, you know, my colleague Ashley Shu is a, a figure in the disability studies community, and we have other folks here. And this is a big theme you hear a lot from that community is that these are, as you said, just as you said, you know, these are things they've been pushing for, for forever. And, you know, finally it happens because, um, you know, the ableds, need it and then as you know as soon as like the ableds don't need it there is this real risk that we can just take it all away so
1: yeah yeah. and i mean we know what's in part behind that push to have us all back in the classroom um which is profit um and profit that isn't very concerned with x kind of risk um though the one we're we're living in and we might also We may, I don't know. I don't know how you feel. Be happy at moments to be back with students. And also there are other problems. So one thing that's interesting is very particular to the therapeutic community. There's a lot of debate about whether or not it's better to meet on Zoom with no mask Mm
0: -hmm. than
1: to meet in the office with a mask. Yeah, and people again have very strong feelings about this. So because it's not very interesting to say, well, it totally depends on the individual. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. To think about um, this more theoretical idea again of the medium inside, and that could include the idea of a face covering being so impossible why right um, it turns out scientifically that it works just fine but same with zoom is considered as good as in person and yet experience is saying something else for a lot of people and yeah. so that's really where the coda is trying to go at the end
0: mm-hmm. so what's next for you do you do you do you have a next project lined up
1: yeah so my second book is called mother's little helpers technology in the american family and it's under contract with MIT press cool. i'm currently writing the sixth and final, seventh and final chapter. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done before I can give it back in. So, right, the pandemic also slowed down the distance cure. So it looks like I'm just, but I'm not. Um,
0: I see. Interesting.
1: And, you know, it's part of the same idea. And there is a, a, a very serious idea or contender for a third project of looking at this very important relationship between technology And things and people, I think the title of your podcast, uh, gathered around this idea of triads. Uh, And so now the triad that I'm looking at is the mother, but really, again, quite broadly defined. I'm not very invested. Well, I I write about that, so I'll leave it there, about, quote unquote, the mother and the child and technology from, you know conceptions of fit and unfit mothering at mid-century as it's run through domestic architectures. Um, yes, the refrigerator mother, but many other kinds and qualities as well, through you know, incarcerated parents who are mm. fighting for um, access to their children in custody, as well as doing all kinds of distanced intimacy practices. So it really starting in the 1940s through our present, again, a somewhat shorter time frame. Um, but that's, that's cool. the
0: book. And it, do you write about Valium or other pills? Is that part of the story?
1: Uh, so I always am quick to say I'm not really talking about the the OG oh, okay. Mother's Helper,
0: <laughs> um, but yeah. thinking
1: about what else beyond. I mean, so drugs come up uh, mostly yeah. around kids, um, but yeah. also Incarcerated parents, right? Where the explosion of women's prisons occurs after mandatory minimum sentencing, uh, and then again after algorithms come into play there. Um, but no, I'm looking at, you know, mother's little helpers like uh the person who programmed an Apple II to rock the baby's cradle, or mother's little helpers. Cool. Um like you know um the nanny cam which also begets a kind of diagnosis of shaken baby syndrome so it's very it's various um but those non-drug helpers
0: <laughs> right on right on oh uh, i yeah. guess they helped you and i think and, so and, yeah. <laughs> what's that
1: I, you know and um, and pot right and wine yeah. right Are also <laughs> there for sure oh
0: all the substances help us immensely it's true uh, Hannah, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. It's been, a, it's been a lot of fun.
1: Thank you so much, Lee.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities, teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.